Welcome to the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast. As investigators and mediators focused on regulatory and workplace conflicts, we have seen a thing or two and learned a thing or two. In each episode, we will be speaking with industry leaders in regulation, human resources and law, as well as thought leaders and top performers in investigations and mediation. We bring our audience interesting and cutting edge information on conflict management as it relates to professional regulation and workplace disputes. This industry is one of many views and we have to say that some views shared by our guests are not necessarily shared by the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast, its hosts or sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Bernard and Associates, trusted investigation and mediation professionals since 2004. Now here's your host, Dean Bernard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. And as usual, thanks for listening. Now, as our listeners know, we provide a mix of information while focusing on things that would be of interest to professional regulators and human resources professionals. And today's a special day because we're going to cover both these broader areas at the same time. Today, I have with me the Registrar and Vice President of Regulation for the Human Resources Professionals Association, Claude Balthasar. For those who might not be aware, the HRPA is the statutory professional regulatory body for human resources professionals in Ontario. As the registrar, Claude's responsible for HRPA's Office of the Registrar, which is the hub of regulatory activity at the HRPA. Now, uh, interestingly enough, when I was looking for background information on Claude, I wanted to give him a proper introduction, of course, and uh, I went to his LinkedIn profile, and what I found was so great. His about section simply says, smart guy, who after a career in leadership development, organizational development, and human resources found his true calling in professional regulation. I just love this because so often we have these long descriptions that people use to describe themselves on LinkedIn, and I'm sure people don't read most of them. And I loved how this one was sort of (laughs) to the point and bang on. But of course, I noticed Claude's passion for regulation, and that is really what's led Claude and I to crossing paths many times in our work. We've worked together on conferences and various things. So let me give you a a little more information on Claude before we get started. Claude earned a PhD in psychology from the University of Waterloo in 1985. In 2007, after 22 years in various human resources positions across different sectors, including academia, government, consulting, and business, Claude joined the HRPA and soon after began championing the cause of professional regulation for human resources professionals in Ontario. Claude really is the architect of the HRPA's regulatory framework and played a key role in the passage of the Registered Human Resources Professionals Act. Claude has conducted numerous presentations and webinars and has published dozens of articles on the topic of professional regulation. He's a registered industrial organizational psychologist in Ontario and holds a CHRL designation with the HRPA. He's active in the professional regulation community and is widely acknowledged as an expert in the measurement of performance for professional regulatory bodies. So, of course, the question is, why did I ask Claude to join us today? Well, I want him to share with us his experience navigating the process of leading a professional association into becoming a professional regulator and share his insights on regulation and where it's going. This is really an interesting and challenging time for professional regulation, and I think Claude has a unique perspective to share with us. So with that long introduction, I apologize. Welcome to the show, Claude. 
Well, thank you, Dean. Of course, you've been with HRPA from the very start, so I'm really very glad to participate here today. Well, no, that's great, and we're glad to have you. And so maybe just to get us started, the best place to begin, you know, is just asking, I mean, the HRPA really is an association or was an association or is an association. There's a, uh, that became a regulatory body. Is that right? Like how, is that, is that how I should be looking at it? One could say that it's actually an interesting story. One that of course is still being written for the Lieutenant governor. It probably took less than a minute to give Royal assent to our act and to make HRPA a full-fledged regulatory body, but pivoting from being a member first organization to being a public first organization. That is a long journey. I used to think that HRPA was alone on this journey, but it's clear to me that in one way or another, this journey is a journey that many professional regulatory bodies are on in one way or another. We are all dealing with a context and environment that is changing and that can be quite confusing at times. Really confusing how? Well, there's a number of reasons why things are messy. One is that governance structures are embedded in legislation that are really carryovers from our past as associations. The mandates of professional regulatory bodies are often open to interpretation. The boundaries are really unclear as to what professional regulatory bodies can or cannot do. I guess for some, it's less clear than others. There's also confusing terminology where some regulatory bodies have the word association in their names, but are not really associations in their function. And some non-regulatory organizations seem to do a lot of the same things that professional regulatory bodies do. So it can be quite confusing. Yeah, I, I can see that, especially for the public, but maybe even for some of the people working in associations and regulatory bodies. Maybe we can go through these sort of one by one. What, what are those governance structures that are the carryovers from our past as associations? Well, yes. You know, as noted by Caton and Williams in the recent report for the College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers, professional regulatory bodies evolved from professional associations, but the acts, the legislation has not always caught up and there's remnants of this past that are embedded in many enabling statutes, including HRPAs. For instance, board members being elected, the use of the term member rather than registrant or licensee, annual meetings of members where bylaws are ratified. As mentioned by Caton and Williams, One big challenge, of course, is that these vestigial remains, if you want, of association are embedded in legislation and therefore would require legislative change to change these. Right. And of course, I can see the connection with those examples. And I have to say, you know, the the term member is one that's always puzzled me, even in organizations or regulatory bodies that have almost forever been considered regulatory bodies. In health regulation, for example, we see the term member used throughout the legislation, yet we see some regulatory bodies that are legislated under that framework not using the term member in their day-to-day operations and using the term registrant, for example, instead. So that's really interesting. And the second point you noted was that mandates are open to interpretation. Can you maybe expound a little bit on that? Sure. Once again, sort of Harry Kate in what's called a Caton report. I don't know why we call 
the dentists in BC's report, the Caton report, since he's written so many. Nonetheless, he sets out the argument that the duty to serve and protect the public is just too vague. And let me just have a quote here. The Health Professionals Act charges the colleges established under it with the duty to serve and protect the public. Despite the 15 objects which fall under this general duty, I consider it too vague to ensure that a regulatory college is fully accountable for the well-being of patients. Serving and protecting the public can widely be interpreted in ways that meet the interests of the profession, I guess, as opposed to the interests of the public. So the legislature wanted to provide boards of professional regulatory bodies or councils with the flexibility to adapt the definition of public interest to current situations and circumstances. Unfortunately, that leaves the door open to self-serving interpretations. Right. And I imagine the legislation should be giving us more clarity, or at least at least one would think. You mentioned unclear boundaries as well. Well, here's an interesting one. So when we refer to legislation as enabling legislation, but there's very little talk about disabling legislation. So the legislation basically tells you what some of the things you can do, but rarely tells you what you can't do. And that leaves the door open to say, well, nowhere in the act does it say we can't do this. Therefore, we should be able to do it. Right. And that's why Bill 46 in Alberta is so interesting, because one interpretation in the past was that, well, a professional regulatory bodies can do things outside their mandate as long as these other activities do not impede or get in the way of the core mandate. But Bill 46 is, as far as I know, the first legislation that prohibits professional regulatory bodies from carrying out the functions of a professional association. On the other hand, Bill 46 does not define what those association functions are. But even the term association is confusing. You know, the word association in its true meaning simply means a group of people or group of persons that come together for a common purpose. Right. However, in a professional circles, the term association has come to refer to the body that represents the interests of the members. But there are a number of professional regulatory bodies in Ontario and elsewhere that have the term association in their name because that was coined, if you want, with the first meaning in mind, just simply a group of individuals that uh, come together for the common purpose. So some associations are not really associations. And so it complicates things as well. Some people would say the word colleges, right? Well, there's academic college, professional college. And so a lot of our terminology is uh, confusing, especially to people who are not, you know, in the sector. And I think, as you mentioned before, even people who are in the sector. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you think about some of those association designations that get doled out, I mean, you see them all over the place. They dole out certificates and and different status marks in many cases. And, you know, a lot of these things have no rigor in terms of the process of what it takes to obtain the designation. I I actually know of one organization, I won't mention it now, but there's, there's one organization that basically, based on the length of time you've been a member of that particular association, you can have a certain designation. The longer you've been part of that association, the higher the rank of this designation, which 
has frankly zero meaning to it. And yet the public could see that as being, well, uh, oh, well, this person's got this certification. They must be highly qualified when in fact they just hung around long enough to get it. So there's definitely confusion for the public as well. And, and it does sort of raise the concern, I think, that as these associations continue to do that type of thing, does that actually create a risk to the public? You know, and it's it's organizations like the HRPA and others that have put rigor behind the certifications because they have a, a greater responsibility to do so now. So yeah, I, I just find that all very interesting. Yes, it is, especially from a consumer public perspective. Yeah. You know, all sorts of organizations can mimic professional regulatory bodies. For instance, associations can offer designations, you know, letters after one's name. There's certifying bodies. There's also private act regulators. I mean, the whole issue of private act regulation versus public act regulation is another source of confusion. Are private act regulators true regulatory bodies? And that was a question that was asked for quite some time, that there's a list of regulatory authorities in Table 1 of the Ontario Labor Mobilities Act which is actually much broader than the list of regulated professions in Schedule 1 of the Fair Access to Regulated Professions in Compulsory Trades Act, so, or FACTA. And then a new one that was added last year is, is, well, there's the delegated administrative authorities, and one that was just added last year, we now have also oversight authorities. Now, of course, the big difference is whether an organization has a public interest mandate or not. But it is very confusing. The issue is that this complexity creates the opportunity for regulatory capture. Regulatory capture. So what's meant by that term? Well, regulatory capture is simply when a regulatory body starts acting more in the interests of the regulated than in the public interest. And regulatory capture is well known as the Achilles heel of self-regulation. So basically... That's inherent in self-regulation that there is this risk of regulatory capture. And all of the ambiguities noted above make it fertile ground for regulatory capture to happen. That's the connection there. Now, we can understand many of the developments in the last 10 years as anti-capture initiatives. So, for instance, what did we have? We started with transparency initiatives where uh, regulatory bodies had to make some of their activities public. Then there was hard governance issues. So for example, structural aspects, appointments versus selections, balanced numbers on committees and on councils and independence. And then there was a creation of oversight bodies. In Ontario, there's the OFC, the Office of the Fairness Commissioner. In BC, there was the Office of the Superintendent of Professional Governance. There's oversight legislation, like the Professional Governance Act in Alberta, assessment-like initiatives, like the College Performance Measurement Framework in Ontario for the health professions. And, you know, the strongest medicine yet is in Alberta, the splitting of dual mandate professional regulatory bodies. So you can sort of see that for 10 years now, you can see these as all anti-capture initiatives but they've been ratcheting up over time. Now, interestingly enough, I think all of these have some impacts that weren't foreseen. So for instance, see, all of these changes in one way or another weaken the grip of the professions on professional regulation. 
And once you give up on the idea that every profession needs to have its own regulatory body, ideas that were once unthinkable now become thinkable. So what we're seeing now or going to see is an increasing number of amalgamations and the focus on efficiency. Because once you give up on the notion that only members of a certain profession can regulate a profession, then all of a sudden you say, well, why should we keep these inefficient small organizations and why don't we start amalgamating? So these are interesting times for professional regulation. Definitely interesting times. And so with that, maybe I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you can, for our listeners about the journey of the HRPA. How did professional regulation come to happen at HRPA? Now, this is an interesting story. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, the words regulate, regulation, regulator, and regulatory were simply not used at HRPA before 2008. Although HRPA had been regulated by private act since 1990, I guess there was not an awareness of that. Now, in any case, in 2009, new acts for the chartered accountants, the certified management accountants, and the certified general accountants were tabled in the legislature. I remember that. HRPA's private act, the 1990 act, actually was cribbed from the Certified General Accountants of Ontario Act of 1983, okay? So the idea was, well, if the accountants are getting fresh new acts, uh, maybe uh, we should, or HRP should get an upgrade to its act as well. So a draft was created based on the then new CGA Act, which is CGA Act of uh, 2010. On October 1st, 2010, the HRPA Board of Directors passed a motion to formally begin the process. Two weeks after that, on a Tuesday afternoon, I got a call from Ledge Council, Legislative Council, and it went like this. Thank you for your instructional draft, but you're not going to get it. There was a pause, and then, but if you want the CMA Act, we can give you that but you have to let us know by Thursday. So this is Tuesday and by Thursday. Now, if you take the Certified Management Accountants Act of 2010, which has now been repealed, but that's another story. And if you take that act in word and replace CMA with HRPA, you have 95% of the Registered Human Resource Professionals Act of 2013. Yeah, no, this story is not. There's more to the story, Dean. The act received its first reading on November 23rd. Okay, that's only seven weeks after the HRPA board passed the motion to formally begin the process. Okay, so from sort of saying, hey, yes, let's go for it, to have receiving first reading was seven weeks. Now, of course, it took another three years to, to get passage. It got prorogued and various things like that. So it took three years to get passage and royal assent. But there were really no substantive changes after that first reading. But here's the important part of this all. HRPA members or registrants, as they were to become, were not consulted and did not even know that a new public act was in the offing until the act was tabled in the legislature. Now, that's really what we've been sort of dealing with, in a sense, 
Usually it takes years of internal discussions and lobbying and referendum and discussion and debates, even before the legislature will consider a public act. For HRPA, it happens so quickly that it's been a matter of playing catch up. So some of the work that many professions have had to do before the act was introduced in the legislature, we're having to do after. Wow. First two things. I mean, I'm blown away by the speed. That's just an unreal speed to get to that point so fast. But what's the catch up? What are the things now that you need to do? So earlier we described the journey as pivoting from being a member first organization to being a public first organization. But you know, there is no map, like a pirate map with an X that says you are here. Right. And things proceed at different paces in different ways. What we found is the process and procedures for activities, such as processing complaints and discipline and appeals, the procedural matters are the easiest to get up to speed. That's the easiest to do. Developing practice standards and practice guidelines, that took a bit more time. We're just beginning to introduce those. But the real challenge is with the mindset of registrants and the public, I guess. Registrants are not used to being regulated. And so it's a real change for them to think in terms of being regulated and what regulation means. Right. Yeah. I mean, having that higher level of accountability for people who typically have, I guess, been accountable to their employers or accountable to their clients now have this additional level of accountability to the broader public as a member of that regulatory body. And I'm sure that is a, a huge adjustment for uh, for many of them. Now, this has been great. I mean, it's wonderful to get all this information. And as I promised my, my listeners, when I started this podcast, we try to keep it to a certain length. So this has been just great. But one thing I always like to sort of include is I like people to get to know the person a little bit as well that, that I've been speaking to on the podcast. So every episode, I like to ask for you to share a little bit about, you know, off work interests. What are some of the things that are near and dear to you that occupy your time outside of your core work? Well, you know, Dean, my staff who may be listening will not believe that I do anything else but work, but let's see what I, I can come up with. <laughs> I actually am into vinyl, vinyl records, that is. My musical tastes are quite eclectic. I always like the saying from Louis Armstrong that says, you know, there's two kinds of music, the good and the bad, and I play the good kind. <laughs> I, I subscribe to that. I also have a wood-fired pizza oven. I like to make pizzas from scratch, you know, the real sort of authentic Napolitano type of stuff. I'll be waiting and for I, the invitation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also I'm a decent carpenter. You know, Wood and I get along. So oh, that's awesome. Now I'm going to sneak something in here because one thing I left out in your introduction is that as part of your education, you were trained in hypnosis. And so dare I ask, do you have any fun with that skill? Actually, the story here is I, I was actually in first year of grad school when I took the course that included training on hypnosis. Now, the prof was a well-known academic in psychology, right? So the, the real deal. And in his first class, right? So the fresh class, he didn't know anybody. He started off with, and that's how he started off the class. You don't mess around with friends and family. Now, he didn't use the word mess around, but you can insert 
what do you think? <laughs> but you get the drift. And that made such an impression on me. I never really did mess around with friends and family. <laughs> Hypnosis was always used in terms of uh, therapy or in actually some use in terms of uh, what forensics and sort of uh, witness testimony and things like that. Right. But no, I never did have any fun. <laughs> well, that just goes to demonstrate the consummate professional that you are. I mean, I think it's an amazing skill to have. And uh, I've often been very curious about it as an investigator, of course. I often deal with people who have memory challenges. And I've often thought, gee, I wonder if hypnosis would be something that could be helpful. But of course, a, a topic for another day. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> well, Claude, I really want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. I, I know our listeners are definitely going to agree that this was eye-opening and interesting. And I know I'm walking away with some new thoughts that I want to explore a little further. And, you know, I work very heavily in regulation, but been a very focused, as you know, focused area of investigations. And my knowledge of some of the broader, bigger picture aspects of regulation could definitely use some tuning up. So this has been a great opportunity for me. And I really appreciate it. Now, I know that some people might want to connect with you. So can you let our listeners know how best to do that? Sure. I mean, the best is always email, which is simply my initial last name at hrpa.ca. So it's cbalthazard at hrpa.ca. Excellent. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again, Claude. And everybody, that's it for this episode. I want to thank you all again for listening. And as I always say, please send us your comments, your suggestions. Our goal with this podcast, as with everything we do, is constant and never-ending improvement. And your feedback helps us with that. So we can bring you interesting and helpful content with each and every episode that we produce. And your help contributes to that ability to do that. All of our podcasts get linked on our website at benardic.com. You can find us on the Bernard & Associates YouTube channel as well. And to reach me, you can email me at dbenard at benardinc.com or find me on LinkedIn by just searching Dean Bernard. So with that, everybody, we'll see you next time on the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>